Hello, and welcome to the Rubber Duck Dev Show. I'm Creston. And I'm Coda. And today, we are going to talk about uh, exploring robotics. Uh, but before we get into that discussion, normally what we do is discuss what transpired over the last week. However, in the case of the last episode, it's been quite a while due to the break. So, of course, wanted to say Happy New Year to, to everyone. I hope you had a great holiday season. And uh, in terms of what transpired over the break, one thing you'll notice, well, you should see a fair bit of changes. Uh, one is Chris is not present now, and he's just become so inundated with work. He said he couldn't dedicate to be present for every single episode. So he may be on and off the, the podcast uh, at this time, but, you know, like like I've mentioned to others, you know, the show must go on. So I continue to go ahead and produce episodes. Um, so that's uh, one thing. The other thing is that um, we're trying out a new recording platform. So um, hopefully the sound and the video quality will be better uh, as well as, of course, changed, hopefully. You know, we're, we're actually doing post-editing of the content. So we'll, we'll kind of see how it works. We, I don't quite know how it will end up, but I hope it'll look better uh, than you know, some of our previous attempts and we can balance sound and things of that nature. So, so hoping that that, that will go well. Uh, apart from what else has been going on over the holiday season, well, I got COVID, so that was exciting. <laughs> and, you know, and my whole family got it. So that was tripping, you know, quadruply exciting. Um, but apart from that, I am still working diligently on finishing my scaling Postgres course. So that's something I'm working on. Um, I'll have more information about that uh, in the coming weeks. Um, but that's pretty much my update. And I think I've done enough talking. So, Coda, how was your last? What have you been working on the last week or so? Yeah. So, actually, you know, there have been a few things. Um, so, for those of you, I've been on this for, I think, show a couple of times. But for those of you who don't know, um, I'm, I do, I work in robotics. Um, and, I started a startup a while back, and so you know, a lot of times I think kind of about what the new technologies are in the world. So I've been doing a little bit of exploring, basically, for our company, uh, looking at sort of the next generation AI tooling and how that really impacts our development processes. So um, you know, the kind of embarrassingly, actually, my knowledge about the AI tools out there was you know, before like pretty limited and probably still is a little bit, but, um, you know, and everyone knows about GitHub Copilot and ChatGPT and things like that, but I've been looking at leveraging tools for uh, making like prettier presentations and for uh, things like doing some of the front end development work um, for us. So there's like all these tines with like Figma and uh, like builder.io that kind of automatically generate React code for you uh, using these these AI systems. So that's been, you know, that's been pretty interesting. Um, so I was given a task by, um, you know, the, the CEO uh, or the chairman of, of our company to go to Korea to uh, inspire the developers there. So, so I figured this is as good a topic as any. No pressure. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you know, yeah. And actually, I am excited about, about this topic, so I think it'll be fun. But yeah. And then I think, uh, you know, I've been kind of going back to way back when, uh, maybe about 
uh, like 15 years ago or so 20 years, almost 20 years ago, I started getting a little into like 3D modeling kinds of things. So I, you know, and I kind of took a step away from it. I mean, I use it for work or I have been using it for work a lot, but just never really for fun. Um, so, but this weekend I've been making this little train. Um, <laughs> it's, this is, uh, I don't know if, let's see if I can find, this is the, the train it's based off of. So wow. this is in Tokyo. This is kind of the main loop line, uh, in the middle of Tokyo. And I think they come once every like one or two minutes usually. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's this constant flow wow. of these trains in the middle of Tokyo. And so I made a sort of mini to be version of it. There's, I think, uh, and what you know, tool you can, like, did you use? Oh, this in, this in Blender. Right, right. Blender. So, okay. Yep. Yeah. So you can like open and close the doors, the, you know, the, the wheels kind of rotate, um, you know, things like that. So I'm thinking I'll like plop this into 3JS or some other 3D tool and I don't know what I'm going to do with it, but at least I want to make it run around, I guess. So yeah. that's kind of the, yeah, the, that's been my past week or so. All right. Cool. Cool. Yeah. All right. So, uh, so we're, you know, we're exploring robotics and this is something, you know, a lot about, and I know very little about. <laughs> so I guess first, if you could kind of give an intro into like your little bit of your history with regard to robotics. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, I think for me, um, I first developed an interest in robotics when the Mars rovers, and I think was it 2003 or something, 2004, uh, went up and perseverance, or I figured there will be a, a little picture of it somewhere, somewhere that pops up on screen about now. But, um, <laughs> and so uh, based on that, uh, well, I got really interested in that, and a professor at, you know, was, I grew up in the Boston area, and I'm still here, but a professor at MIT that sort of just had a very loose connection with actually let me kind of sit in in his classes at MIT for, I think, about a semester when I was about 10. Um, so wow. I didn't really... Yeah, so I didn't really learn much at that time from that, but at least having that exposure was... Um, was really, really big. And I think was I mean, just really a, a unique way to kind of explore a field when you're really a young kid. Um, so since then, I don't know, in like, you know, middle Well, I, middle I didn't school, have MIT in my backyard to be able to just go drop well, in on classes where I was growing up. So I mean, it's lucky that, you know, I grew up in an area that's, that's so close, right? And to yeah. do that kind of, you know, there's MIT, Harvard, things like, and I guess, you know, every, pretty much every area has good universities as well. And so, well, but, and Boston is ways. unique in the cluster that's there. Yeah. Yeah. So it's certainly lucky with that in that, on that front. So having that exposure, um, really made a big difference for me. And from there I started writing software because at the time, um, as a kid, I didn't have enough money to build robots. So you know, but if you write software, that's a lot cheaper. Um, so there was this nice C++ fat C++ book from, you know, I don't know even when, uh, but that I actually went through uh, later that summer and just 
and that was my first exposure to, to programming. I think nowadays it's much easier to to get into it because it's you know there's so many resources. But back then, the way to go was to look at one of these big books and and just sort of go through it. I guess I learned so, from many big books. Know. It's 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 yeah. fine. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I still. I mean, you can see there's. I don't know. I have. Yeah, there's robotic <laughs> stuff. There's a lot of programming. So I have some like Rust books, geometric algebra, like all sorts of different things over there. So I'm still a firm believer of the, the old school uh, book strategy. But um, yeah, and then I went to school for electrical engineering and then went to a robot AI company, worked there for a little bit. And then after that, started a robotics company. So, so that's. So so like in high school or i mean so mm -hmm. 10 years old clearly you're is that is that even middle school well not even quite i yet. was in elementary school at the yeah time yeah when I started this whole so like did you do anything in middle school or high school uh, or is it just learning on your own like the c plus plus did you do anything were you in i think they have robot club some schools do or something did you do yeah, anything in, so... in, during those years so in high school, there was, the, you know, at the time, there was a robotics club that had kind of just started at our high school. Um, and back then, it was, they had the battle bots. Mm -hmm. And that was mm -hmm. the only thing they had. And frankly, I personally was not that interested in that. Um, and so I ended up basically starting my own group within the club that was focused on doing, like, autonomous you know, robot kinds of things. And uh, so we did this competition called Botball. And I know we did okay while I was there, but the year after I left, I think my team, the team that I'd been a part of, either I think was like in the top three or four in the world, I think. <laughs> is, is so that clearly the people after me did better. <laughs> but Is that know. a thing? What did you call it? Robot ball? Uh, botball. Botball. Is that like yeah, a sport for robots? It's so it's a little robot competition. So they give you like some task uh, where you know it's supposed to simulate some sort of industry. Okay. Okay. Situation. So I think right, in, right. Um, I remember like there was one where I think we were supposed to be like moving. I think they had like. You know, you're supposed to move like oil barrels or something like this, from right? One right, thing right. To another, but it's all like you know, using Legos and it's very small scale. Um, and a big okay. part of that, yeah. So I think you've maybe you've heard of like first robotics. I don't know if you're plugged into. Um, like I said, so my robotics knowledge is about this big. <laughs> yeah, no, but um, there's a very, very, very famous, popular competition called First Robotics, and that is at a you know it's a very very high level and and all these things and um honestly the work they do is very impressive the things that you know they have sponsors from you know industry helping the different students in different schools and all all these different things um but the one thing that is an issue is it's very very expensive for the schools to run um especially because a lot of these robots are you know like they're taller than a, an adult human and they're they they're very large, right? I mean, they're these massive machines that drive around, and you know, you not only need sort of the the resources to or 
to just buy the parts to be able to do that. But you have to have the man- manufacturing capabilities. You have to have a space to test that out. I mean, even just like a space to store that, it can be an issue yeah. in a lot of schools. So um, Botball, it's like, you know, all the robots are, you know, right, almost, right, right. almost handheld, right? So it's, yeah. Um, but it was much more focused kind of on that, you know, on the software side of things, uh, at least when, at least when I did that. Uh, like the only, the, the only connection, like, well, with regard to Legos is, of course, the Mindstorm stuff. Yep. And, but that was still, you know, I could have potentially introduced my son to that, but still that was pretty expensive at the time when he was growing up. So any, yeah. so we never kind of pursued that, but. Yeah. I mean, I think that's kind of the big problem, right? Is um, we have, so uh, one of our newer employees, she doesn't have a background specifically in robotics. She's more like a data analyst and, um, but she figured, you know, it's kind of good opportunity to learn these things. So I was looking at the different, you know, tools to kind of learn robotics and costs have not come down. Uh, you know, you think that these like little, yeah, like having like a little robot that has some sensors on it and things like that can be, you know, pretty affordable, but especially nowadays with Arduinos and all these different things like that coming out. But it's actually pretty expensive uh, unless you're willing to actually build it yourself. But in order to do that, you need to know how, right? Yeah, it sounds like that's ripe for somebody like uh, like the Raspberry Pi is something that came on and made like $50 computer, something super cheap. Mm-hmm. It sounds like there's an opportunity for some company to make some sort of cheap robotics product to do that does something i don't know yeah yeah and there have been or maybe a not. lot of attempts right <laughs> um there have been a ton yeah, of attempts know. but okay um i think the problem is that the you know robotics often requires enough computational power and like you know you might need some sensors and things like that and very quickly the cost just shoots up true true um i think as, the one oh go ahead no i was saying as i was thinking about prepping for this call and thinking about robotics it's like okay you have to know and you can of course correct me but i'm like okay you have to know some software engineering so that's one axis and then okay now you got you're introducing hardware and for a lot of software engineers that's an entirely new axis that that they haven't dealt with before like my only exposure was playing around with an Arduino or however you pronounce that anyway, for, for a little bit. And that requires a special thing, but now you're introducing robotics and yes, your hardware with Arduino may have sensors and what, but you're talking about movement and uh, it's a whole nother axis of complexity that, that goes along with it. So I'm like, yeah, that is, that's the trifecta of stuff you have to learn to be able to do this stuff, at least from my layman understanding. Yeah, and I mean, that's a good point. Uh, And that's actually, I think, one of the biggest reasons that I've been interested in robotics, right? Because it's a cross-section of so many different fields. So you work with people of very different backgrounds, you know, different knowledge, you know, different skill sets. um, And you have to understand, at least at a baseline, what, how things work in of a different way and it keeps things always very fresh um as far as kind of the the different 
industries that are involved. Uh, you know, I mean, so yeah, you mentioned there's software, um, there's a hardware component, which uh, very often you're talking about either electronics, uh, you know, so some electronics engineering or electrical engineering kind of thing. Um, in some cases, you might want to be designing your own PCBs. Um, and then uh, there's sort of the the mechanical aspect of you have these these physical machines that you're manipulating usually. Um, but beyond that also, uh, there's kind of these big subfields um, or fields that kind of uh, within engineering, like controls, controls engineering, which is... I'm sorry, can you repeat that own. again? What, what's it called? Controls. Okay, controls. So, like, yep, yeah, so, okay. you know, con control, you know, controls is a full field on its own. Um, and what it is, is basically the math of, let's say you have some desired input, you know, some desired motion. How do you get your system to, how do you modify your system to give you some desired output? Um, and so there's, you know, within that, there's all sorts of different things as well. But could, could you just give me a basic that, example of that? Yeah. Um, like is it you're trying okay, to yeah, make a say, robot go yeah. from point A to point B, or is there something? Or if you could just give me a basic example. Well, okay, let's say you um, want to, you know, let's say you you're a pilot, right? And so you fly a plane, and one of your tasks is to make sure that your plane flies at a certain elevation. So in order to do that, you know, if you go a little bit, let's say we're trying to get to here. If you go a little bit over, then you you try to get the plane to go lower a bit and so that's that's a very basic controls problem um but there are many, or many even, examples or even like that. cruise control in a car yep would that yep, be an exactly um, you want to maintain a certain speed is. but now you got a hill you got to deal with so you need to make adjustments to do that yeah um and so that's you know that's absolutely you know a common common kind of problem like that. Um, I think also, for example, uh, like a thermostat, mm -hmm. controlling the temperature, depending on, you know, how you, uh, you know, your HVAC system has a control loop in it, and it uses these kind of control theory problems within that. Um, I'll also show you, this is called an... And, so, and it's a little bit of feedback loops as well. Yeah. Yep. Oh, um, the biologist in me is like, okay, feedback loops. Okay. <laughs> right. Yeah. So this is, yeah, this is actually called an inverted pendulum. So you, you move basically, how do you drive this car to make sure that this stays up? So, you know, like a segue is a good example of. Right. You know, right. Well, um, but you know, and actually the interesting thing about it, you know, you mentioned your biology background, but um, you can, a lot of these kinds of same problems are often used for talking about like how to manipulate uh, how much of a chemical to, you know, put into some sort of, you know, like even I think in a lot of sort of biology research and and things like that there's actually a lot of use for this um and you know in, with sort of chemical engineering as well um control theory is a big part of that so it's a pretty broad field and actually just one other thing 
um, you mentioned that there's a feedback loop involved. I was actually, yes, that's true, but I was also a little bit careful not to specifically state that um, because okay. <laughs> in many cases, um, there's something called an open loop control. And with that, you're basically just saying, okay, I want this thing to do, you know, to behave like X. Um, and I'm not going to, you know, I don't have any sensors to see what the output oh, looks like. So I'm just okay. going to assume that it did that correctly. Um, okay. So that's, you know, yeah. So that does exist. Um, and it's actually sort of one of the, you know, earlier ways that you kind of think about control uh, when you're going through school studying that as well. So, um, yeah, so, you know, you have your control theory, you know, you have your mechanical engineering. In some kinds of robotics, you have to worry about, uh, for example, um, like pneumatics or hydraulics. So then you have sort of fluids related problems to solve as well. Um, you know, you uh, a lot of robotics research actually comes from sort of biomimicry. So you look at how systems in biology in the you know in the animal kingdom, for example, work, um, and you try to model something that behaves in a similar way. So it's kind of this cross section of so many different fields and there's so many different ways to approach it um i think actually with the biology part too um my uh the the professor i mentioned um who pulled me in he actually has there's a paper from nature that has a photo that he took of his research on the front cover and what he was doing was he was using um basically light to control uh, like muscle tissue to try to make a robot that's powered by muscles and you know and you feed it blood and and things like that and it's you know so so really kind of the thing about robotics that I found so interesting is that it really takes just a, you know it's it's kind of a meta field right where it's not yeah. really any one field and it's kind of a conglomerate of many yeah. So, so that was kind of the some of the stuff you did in high school. Like, what did you do in college that kind of continued to put you on the path? Yeah. So, I think um, my major was in electrical engineering, and then right, I, right. Um, yep, and then I did uh, controls and robotics concentration. So, um, and then I was uh, as an intern at a robot AI company, and. That was run by a few uh, professors at you know a different university in, in Boston area, and um, they were they kept telling me that I should drop out so I could work for them full time. <laughs> so I, uh, you know, so guys, you just I need to wait a that. few years or whatever. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, I, I think at that point it was a few months, but well, still. Um, <laughs> so it was only a few months, right? You'd think there wouldn't be a problem to wait, but. Uh, so, unless they thought you would be snatched up by someone super quick if they didn't act fast, but I'd already agreed to work with them after <laughs> I graduated, so I, I don't know why the uh, why there was such an urgency. But you know, I, yeah. So I ended up basically just doing that, um, and then I was working on you know basically more computer vision and uh, artificial neural networks kinds of things, um, and so. Uh, this was before 
GPU based. Well, this was before. Hmm. I think this was basically just after there was that big. Uh, I think it was called Google Net or something. Uh, the first really kind of popular image classifier using convolutional neural nets. So it's basically the first time that, um, you know, machine learning techniques, that neural net techniques really kind of outperformed humans on a task that people thought, wow, like, you know, computers will never be able to, to beat, you know, to beat us on this. Um, and this was for what so specifically? Was, a vision problem? Yeah, this was like basically classifying. So if you give a picture right. of a dog versus a horse, being able to tell which it is um, and just not say that it's a cat. Right, right, um, right. Yeah, so that... And what time period out, was like, that, roughly? I think that was around 2010, 2011 okay. was when that came out. Um, and then I was doing this work, uh, you know, maybe like two years after that or something. Uh, but at the time, there basically there wasn't a way of, you know, there was no tooling really around a lot of it. TensorFlow hadn't come, that's the really popular library now. That hadn't come out yet. Um, all of the research was uh, in a Python library called Theano, which I think got discontinued, but, um, you know, it's basically still very early on kind of this in what we today think of as AI and, and that, that realm. Um, so what I was doing, a big chunk of what I was doing there was, uh, reading actually, uh, neuroscience papers and trying to model the activity of electrical activity of neurons. And un and I'm not a biologist. I'm not a neuroscientist. So of course, this meant nothing to me. Um, but what I what I discovered is at the very back of all of these papers, there's a circuit diagram, and which describes the the activity. So you know, let's say I look at the title, I kind of look at the abstract, and think, well, I don't understand any of this. And then I flip to the back, and <laughs> basically derive the equations from the from the uh, circuit diagram and, and would implement that. Uh, so cow. that was okay. kind of what I was doing. As a, <laughs> yeah, so that was what I was doing when I was in, a, you know, was a, when I was an intern there. And then eventually, basically, I was doing, um, you know, implementing early kind of neural nets on uh, on mobile phones, on like the iPhone five or something like that. One of those. And at the time, what we would do uh, was you would render. So there wasn't any information online, of course, about this. So you'd, you know, so what we were, what we were doing was we would render uh, the neural net as a um, as a shader, as a fragment shader in OpenGL. So we would do all of our computation and render to a virtual buffer or a texture in OpenGL. And then read back the texture in uh, in OpenGL from you know from the GPU. Uh, so it was you know it was faster than running it on the CPU, but you know exceptionally slower compared to you know, these days. You'd either use CUDA 
Um, or if you're talking about on a phone, uh, they have live, you know, they basically have APIs specifically for this. If you're not using one of those, you can just use OpenCL. Uh, or if you want to do something closer to what I was doing, essentially, um, both uh, GLES, the, the mobile version of OpenGL and uh, OpenGL, I think 4.0, uh, and later have a compute shader where you can actually do GPU computations directly um, through OpenGL with the intention of it being, you know, more of the math rather than for display purposes. So, so and, and just remind me again, so, and you were doing this type of vision work, what was the ultimate purpose of it? Um, I was doing, question. Uh, so a lot of it is basically, um, so, okay. Just so, guess, bring it around network. to a practical example of how this yep. impacts yep. robotics, basically. Yeah. Um, so, with so a neural network is basically, um, you know, a a system that basically can approximate like a nonlinear system. So you can have some sort of, you know, basically it interpolates. Uh, so if you have a neural net, and I'm gonna kind of. A little bit here. Um, so, well, let's say we have two points, right? So we have point A and point B. Um, and we want to say, okay, and let's say these are like home prices, right? You know, and so, uh, and so maybe this is the square footage. Um, so we have a 1,000 foot home here, and we have like a 4,000 foot home here. And I don't know why anyone would have a home that big, but. I guess some people do. So, um, and so, you know, maybe this has just a linear relation, right? So, but kind of figuring out if we have, let's say a 2000 foot home, uh, square foot, square foot home, missing, missing, uh, yeah, you know, yeah. literally I don't buy homes, but, um, then if you were to say, okay, well, how much does this cost? Um, then, you know, in this case, you might say, okay, well, this has a linear relationship. You can make an equation for this and solve it very easily. But, you know, what if instead it's a very complex thing and you have, you know, and this line instead of like this looks something kind of like this, right? Yeah. And you have no idea what it's going to be. Or maybe you have, you know, maybe instead of just the square footage, the location matters, the transportation that's nearby matters. Maybe the education system matters too, and like the current state you know, of the, the economy, like. <laughs> right, right. And then so all these different factors play in, and then you suddenly have this very complex system where you can't just write an equation to model it. Um, so what a neural net does is it kind of approximates that. Uh, so it it basically looks at all these examples and says, okay, <clears throat> um, it has all these different parameters that are just and tries to basically fit that system to approximate. Um, and so they, these kinds of things are very, very useful in robotics because, uh, well, you know, for example, with the earlier image recognition problem or classifier problem, essentially that's just the same kind of thing that we're doing here. So you have, you know, a lot of inputs, which is each pixel on the screen, and then you are told as an output, this is a cat. And in order to get from 
these individual pixels on the screen to cat, there's a lot of different, there's basically a ton of math that goes into it, um, which largely is just multiplying matrices together. But that's, that's, um, but that's also kind of the same idea as this, where you might have a bunch of points that, uh, you know, where these are all different cats, and then you have a different cluster that is like, you know, maybe shoes look like this. And then, I don't know, maybe pandas kind of are somewhere in here and your model isn't very good at distinguishing between pandas and either of the other two categories. But either way, it's basically taking these input parameters and then trying to, um, you know, guess at what some output state is. Um, so that's that's essentially what neural nets are. Um, I w you know, when I was working on that, I think it was just sort of generic neural nets related work with kind of the vague understanding that it might be used for vision related things or maybe like decision making of let's say you know we have uh let's say we have like a block um you know we have some sort of cube or some object that we want to pick up and you know maybe we don't know what the object will look like before we we go to pick it up and so we see you know we have some robot arm and um and our robot arm doesn't know how to approach it does it grab it like this or does it grab it from above like how do i grasp it? so there are problems like that this is called grasp synthesis by the way but problems like that which actually require a lot of the same kind of problem as this classifier or what we were talking about with the price of so it's actually like very similar kinds of problems but in very different domain um and all these things are kind of solvable using neural nets so i was looking at this kind of at a level of how do can we model a neural net system that's based on how the human brain works to try to learn how to get a computer to learn more abstract things. Um, yeah. Yep. It's like if a so human goes up... Some of that was yeah, I mean, I think. I mean, yeah. this is really, it's it's kind of, would you say pattern recognition? Yeah, I mean, it's... Because that's it's what Vision's doing. When you look at AI, mm -hmm. yep. that's the whole, it's pattern recognition, what it's... Yep doing now for some you know hey write me a poem so it uses its reference of a poem and all right what should that kind of look like and throw in a little i don't if jitter is the right word but you know little variations to come up with different right. things each time you know because like if a human looks at a box and say all right if someone gives you the instructions go pick up this box you approach the box you say right, how am i going to pick it up am i going to do it this way am i going to do this way you know i and then yep. I do it a certain, so you want a robot to basically make that same kind of determination. You've been given instructions. Can they mm -hmm. figure out how to do it? Yep. Yes, it's exactly that, right? So, you know, like you say, LLMs like ChatGPT right. are also just essentially some, you know, it's a generative model. So it, it generates something instead of just classifying, but it, is kind of the same idea. Um, the fundamental pieces 
is it's ultimately just interpolation um, and and pattern matching essentially. Um, so yeah, that that's a lot of robotics software is actually around this kind of thing now. Um, so if you're interested in going into robotics, AI is or AI machine learning, you know, those kinds of areas are very, very hot right now, um, including for robotics. And kind of the next step on AI, and you're seeing this a little bit with autonomous cars, but um, is to kind of bridge that gap between our computer screens and our phones to the physical world. So, so when you were talking about, like, um, when you said AI, you know, you're, I don't want to say late to the party. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but you were, you were just getting caught up in it. And I know I was late to the party. I mean, I was basically sleeping. And then it was last December or whatever during, you know, the holiday break that my mind exploded looking at all this chat GPT AI stuff like, what the heck, you know? And then I've, I've mostly been using it for marketing and things for over the last year and things of that nature. In terms of the robotics field, how did, well, clearly it's been involved in robotics for many years, but how, at least the last year, you know, ChatGPT and LL, you know, large language modeling and, and all that kind of sort of stuff, how has that changed the robotics field now and going forward, do you think? I mean, I think the, you know, biggest thing right now is uh, one of the hardest parts about robotics is the human interface, right? So it's called an HMI, human machine interface. And sort of where that cross-section is between you sitting as a human or standing there doing whatever tasks you're doing and the machine and making sure that, first of all, that the machine tells the person in a not very obnoxious way and not very, uh, you know, in a concise way, what it's doing. Um, so in some cases, you know, in, uh, in some cases it's, you know, almost an emotion kind of thing. So you see with some robots, uh, some robotics companies, they actually hire like animators, character animators to design the motion and, uh, well, I guess the emotion of the robots, right? So you try to get different behaviors like that. Um, but the other big part about it is generalizing or making an interface that's easy for humans to work with. So a big, you know, if you can speak to a robot and you don't need to, and you can use sort of general language, that's much, much more efficient than for us than having to remember okay, we need to give this specific instruction or, you know, there's often a greater learning curve with that. So, I mean, I think that's a big part of it. Um, so the... apparently, you know, well, like, I, I'm thinking of like ChatGPT, what has mm -hmm. made that so powerful recently for people is that you can speak and you can give it a prompt in Eng relative yep. English. It doesn't have to be super structured in a kind of, well, it takes his best guess at what you wanted and then spits some output at you. You sounds like people what people are working on is to achieve the same thing with a robot. Like if you say, 
well, in the future, I'll say in the future, you know, cook me a steak. It'll know what it's supposed to do mm -hmm. if there's a robot that does right, that. Right, right. Um, so it can maybe go out and research, watch a couple of YouTube videos on, <laughs> you know, 50x speed and try to learn how a steak is made and, you know, how to cook a steak well. And then it'll go through, you know, the New York Times cooking and, and look at the recipes there and then... And then say, okay, now I'm ready to cook a steak, and then it'll take its arm and and move things around. And I think that's actually, in a lot of ways, not too far out. Um, and you know, you're starting to see, you know, a number of companies trying to do exactly that. Um, so in that sense, I think it's it's a big shift. Um, but what you might find interesting is actually OpenAI has been around for a much longer amount of time yeah. uh, than, you know, and of course, right? And a lot of the work they did before was actually with robots. So a lot of the problems that, you know, we look at that they looked at initially were things like um, if you have uh, paper cups uh, on a table and you want to stack them, then like, how do you do that? Or if you took you know, paper ball, you know, the paper cups and a plastic ball and you put them all in the same environment and just say, okay, well, you know, figure out what to do with this. Then it might like put the paper cup face down so that, you know, and then put the ball on top or like it might take a ball and put it inside of a cup or just various things like that where it, you know, where you're sort of trying to do more exploratory work uh, in that case. So their background is actually a lot more um, robotics focused than I think a lot of people might be aware of. Um, they've been a huge innovator in that field for probably about 10 years now, something like that. Um, so, so, but, so go ahead. Oh, but I mean, I think the biggest difference is our biggest impact is just that everyone is thinking about AI now, right? So yeah. with AI, it was kind of the first time that really we have a generic model. And that's, I think, what's important about ChatGPT is it's the first time that we have a model that can do natural language processing and is pretty generic in the sense that it knows a lot about a lot of different things. And sometimes it makes things up, but that's that's really the the big thing is we had these AI models for specific conditions and we had ways of dealing with it, but now we have a way to do something much more generic. Okay. So like in terms of, in terms of robotics, like really early on, when you think of robots, Hey, they use robots to build cars and there's a very specific actuated movement. The robot must go here. It expects a part potentially to be there, picks it up, it moves it and do it. You know, so it's very scripted, I guess, what the robot will do. And I get the sense as you're talking about this AI stuff, they're wanting them be, to become less scripted and more, I don't want to call it versatile. I don't know if, if you have a different phrase in the industry, what, yeah. what you would So ha, when mm -hmm. was the robotic shift or has it always been shifting and just people have been unaware of moving from very programmatic only do these things versus more open field stuff. 
Yeah. Um, so there's that that distinction is basically you're working either in sort of a structured environment or an unstructured environment, um, and or you know you have some like fixed task that you're doing, um, and you know of course most robots in a factory today um, still have more of that that structure that you're describing, where they'll and a big part of that is speed. Right. Um, and cost. So, you know, if you can do things quickly, and it doesn't you can do things cheaply, take yeah. I'm assuming a lot of you don't need a lot of computational power to do. Just do these particular movements. No. Um, although actually, it's more involved than you'd think, because getting a motor to do you know to move and stop at exactly the right location every time is actually trickier than you'd okay. expect um so uh you know especially when you have these very high powered motors and you're you know i think i saw at a trade show once um the big robotics company called fanic had a giant robot arm that's you know really really large and it was picking up and spinning a car in the air it's just kind of like spinning it around and putting it back down and grabbing it and spinning it. And it's just, in order to do that kind of thing, the degree of engineering involved in making sure that the motor stops when you want it to stop is actually tremendous. Um, not only, yeah, I mean, just even from like just the, the amount of current that you need to pass through this thing and controlling that, that's not an easy problem. Um, so, but actually, I think, and the field that I'm in um, is the AMR field. So it's these are autonomous mobile robots. So basically, we have, um, there's this class of robot, which uh, is similar to what you were describing, where they just do a fixed thing, but um, but they always, you know, but it was like cars, little carts that would drive around the factory to move things from place A to place B. And before, what they would use is these, what they call like magnetic tapes, or um, maybe you've seen like with the, you know, you mentioned Mindstorms earlier, uh, they have like a little like line follower or something like that. Um, basically, it's that kind of technology that start, you know, that started before, and that was called uh, AGV. So uh, I think autonomic guided vehicle um and so those were pretty you know are still pretty popular but they have the inherent limitation of um you know you have to you have to put this marker on the floor you can't change it on the fly uh if there's an obstacle in the way let's say there's a big pallet or there's a crowd of people or something then it can't handle that um so the AMR is basically a vehicle that looks at its surroundings and can say, okay, so I'm trying to get to that point. How do I do it? And it will go and do it itself um, while following the rules of, of the factory. It's same idea as autonomous cars, but for inside of the factory. Yeah. yeah. Um, yep. So that's, that's kind of the field that I'm in. Um, and we do a lot of like mapping related things. It's called SLAM, uh, Simultaneous Localization Mapping. Um, and then also a lot of the navigation perceptions so processing your sensor data uh, and then figuring out 
a big part of what what I do, you know, what our company does is predicting the motion of humans or and or like of forklifts and things like that. So uh, current still a somewhat open problem is let's say you have, um, you know, people or other machines in, in a space, then how do you make sure that you disrupt it as minimally as possible? And a big part of that is to just make sure you can predict what people are going to do and make sure you kind of get out of the way. Or in some cases, you actually have um, priority over, you know, over whatever, you know, whoever else is passing right. through. So um, being able to kind of manage those decisions is a big part of that. Um, the main reason that these unstructured problems are becoming so important, though, in, in manufacturing is uh, because basically a lot of people are interested in flexible manufacturing. So being able to, for example, use the same factory utilities to, you know, facilities to build some, you know, build one item and then the next, you know, the next day and or the next week. And retool it for a different something item. totally yeah, different. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so that's really where kind of these unstructured things come into play. Um, I mean, I was also thinking when you were talking about, you know, a robot that follows this very guided path, presumably that's one robot that has one duty and it only does this thing. Whereas if you have something more autonomous, now you it can do a couple of different things. Or if mm -hmm. one of the robots breaks or shuts down, well, another could take over its role or whatnot. So. Yep. Yeah, exactly. Um, and then in our case, actually, we, we basically just do, we do the brains for these robots, right? right? So right. we work with big companies who do the manufacturing of the real robots and they assume a lot of the risk too, which is nice for me. <laughs> um, but the, um, but really the big thing there is, uh, you know, we also do like robot, some of our customers have robots, vehicles with robot arms as well. We call these mobile manipulators. And so that opens things up even more um, where we might have, you, you know, in one case we have uh, a robot driving, you know, driving around, it grabs some part from, uh, from the store, you know, from, I guess the where the warehouse area just grabs like raw, raw material and brings it over to a different machine uh, to like a machine sticks it in to get processed, then takes that drives almost a kilometer to go to a different machine in a different building and inserts the part into that. If the machine needs some maintenance, you know, there's some basic maintenance where you have to replace tools that it's using if they get dull or whatever. So we can actually do that replacement as well. Um, if it needs it, and then and then we kind of go off and and do our thing, and while that's processing, we might go and do some other things too. So, it's you know that that kind of thing that really kind of opens things up. Um, and then on top of that, there's all this data that we end up being able to collect uh, in order to monitor what's going on in the factory. Uh, so, uh, in our case, we can tie in with, for example, a there's a system called Node Red, which is um, through, it's basically IBM's drag and drop like node editor to, for, you know, controlling. I, people use it for smart homes. They use it for factory automation, where basically 
given some conditions, do something else. Um, so we can like tie into that to send you a notification on your phone if something goes down or, you know, things like that, right? Um, so there's a lot that kind of uh, goes into it, but, you know, that I think a big part of what makes systems like that attractive is that really it's the amount of effort required to integrate it into your workflow is pretty minimal. You don't need to like uproot anything. You don't need to, you know, install a bunch of new systems. You just take this robot, you yep. map out the layout, and then you, you know, you tell it to go. And, and that's pretty much it. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I think that actually does quite a bit for, for that. Um, What's also kind of interesting, uh, the robotics world, uh, there's this pretty unique, I think, um, relationship between the academic side and the industrial side um, in the sense that a lot of the current work that's done, most companies these days uh, use what's called ROS, so it's Robot Operating System, and it called robot operating system, but it's actually just, uh, essentially it's a message passing library and some additional utility libraries and a packaging system. So you can basically get these different programs and you link them all together and to create your, you know, to, to create a lot of your robotics uh, systems. So we basically write ROS nodes and then we have a manager on top of that to, to facilitate all this that we, you know, use Elixir for. But um and so but it used to be that ross was a purely academic system um it was originally i think started by a group in i think combination of like stanford and a few other places and they i'm to say maybe toronto university of toronto something like that um and they and a small company organization built around that called a Willow Garage. And they ended up basically starting this Ross thing, which at the time, no one would ever use it for industrial applications because it was so unreliable, so slow, zero security, nothing. And it's interesting that over the years, basically everyone has switched over to using Ross. Um, so it's it's really one of those cases where I'm assuming that's an, it's an open source platform. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. yeah. It's an open source platform. Um, originally only ran on Linux, which I was fine with, but yeah. some people didn't <laughs> like very much, uh, you know, no, but actually it's still, that's one thing that's very annoying about it still. Um, it basically only runs on one very specific. So it, it runs on Ubuntu and every release is tied of uh, ROS is tied to a specific Ubuntu version. So well, that's kind of strange, update, but okay. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a huge pain. Um, and so originally, and this has gotten a lot better with what they call ROS2, which is a complete sort of rebuild of the system. So, you know, the old packages are no longer compatible, but everyone's been updating them and everything is okay now. But um it's really one of those cases where it was, you know, a tremendous pain to use because you would try to use, you know, you'd 
be like, okay, well, I want, you know, or actually the real issue is if you want to update a robot on a customer site and, you know, you are running an old version of Ubuntu because your stack is running on an old version of ROS right. because, you know, you then what, in order to update your robot system, you have to update the whole operating yeah. system. Yeah. And in some cases, it might just be flashing an image, but, you know, I mean, it's often a little bit more complicated than that, especially if you want to do like online updates or anything like that. It becomes tremendously difficult to, to manage. Yep. Um, there's, yeah. So that's a little bit better now, uh, but still a little bit of an issue. Um, we actually, you know, it's still sort of tied to specific releases and I think it lets you use, it also lets you install it on Windows now, I think, and maybe opens it up to like two different Ubuntu releases sometimes. But, uh, you know, essentially we just run everything in Docker. So, you know, I, I unfortunately know all of the GPU-related flags for Docker um, now because of this. So, and all the network-related flags, oh, too. Boy. Those are the two things that I, I learned, uh, you know, that I'm pretty confident at this point, for better or for worse. So uh, yeah. we're, we're running up on time, but I did want to cover a little bit about, like, software engineers. So, like, if a software engineer is watching this, uh, they could be in still in school or they could be working for a company now. If they wanted to get into robotics, what is a path you would recommend giving the landscape of the environment today? So they know some software development. Yeah. What, do you, what are you think some paths they could potentially follow? Uh, there are so many. Um, you know, and well, maybe just give, it, give a few for a different variety. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah, no. So, um, you know, at, at our company, we have a few people who basically just do, uh, you know, backend server work because our robots need, you know, we coordinate hundreds of robots in a single factory. So when we do that, there's all this networking issue, you know, there's all this network stuff. There's, you know, we have uh, these APIs to run our front end off of. So we have, you know, engineers like that. Uh, we have like some full stack engineers. We have what kind of stuff do you use uh, on, the, on the back end? Who, uh, we, so we are a little bit unique uh, on that side. Um, we actually use Elixir. Um, so that's, you know. Is that uh, part of like, like the Phoenix framework or is it just pure Elixir? Phoenix. Uh, we, you know, yeah, we do partially use Phoenix, but, um, yeah, but that's part of kind of the Erlang ecosystem yeah, of yeah, languages, yeah. but yeah. So the open telecom platform from Sony Ericsson way back when, uh, or maybe it was just Ericsson, uh, I guess, um, for that. And I think, yeah. Um, so we use Elixir basically for that OTP platform. Um, and then we are, you know, we actually don't leverage Phoenix as much as we should. Um, Phoenix Live is really, really cool, by the way. I don't know if you've ever checked that out. But, no, yeah, yeah. Well, uh, I mean, yeah. you know, I, a lot of people know me as a Rubyist, but Elixir is the other language that I kind of learned. But a lot mm -hmm. of Ruby people kind of have, get, have gotten led into Elixir because one of the people right. that used to contribute to I think Ruby on Rails started Elixir. Um, 
Jose yeah. Jose Bolim, I think. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So. Yep. Yeah. Um. So yeah, we have that, and we use basically a React based front end. Uh, for you know, we do a lot of like three JS work. So if you're like a three D programmer, like you know, a lot of like game programmers actually go into robotics as well from that standpoint. Um. And that's actually another whole thing is I think video game programming and robotics have actually a lot of similar similarities in a lot of ways because you're reacting to various environments and you you know you deal with a lot of the same kinds of problems. Um, computer graphics as well as just and robotics have had a really long history of being very similar because a lot of the coordinate transformations and things have always been uh, an well, issue yeah, there. Yeah, I mean you're um, dealing with 3D yeah. space in both cases. A, yeah. lot of, a lot of yep. times. So it's it's yeah. similar, yeah. Yep. Um, the math is all the same. So yeah. if you know the math from one, you can do the math for the other. Um, you know, I mentioned earlier, like, control theory. Uh, if, you have a, if you're a control theory person, then you probably already know that you want to do that. But uh, that's a very common path, is to go from either, you know, mechanical engineering or electrical engineering or aerospace or some sort of engineering into a controls focus either master's phd or you know even just a concentration like i did uh, and then to go from there into robotics is pretty common um you know mechanical engineering uh computer vision or ai i think are the different pathways um sort of from the more do it at home uh there's a uh very i think i haven't actually gone through it but um there's a very popular i guess i'm doing a plug for a random course um but there's this like the the construct and they have actually a simulator inside of the browser like a browser-based thing that ties into their back end where you can actually learn how to use ross um in order to do some robotics work without ever leaving your desk um and then i think uh kind of on the sort of, uh, I think there's, you know, if you're more interested in kind of in making your own little things, there's like SparkFun has uh, some little, or SparkFun, I guess these days doesn't have that much for this, uh, but, you know, there's little robotics things that you can get from like SparkFun or Adafruit, or there are a lot of other websites that have things like this um, where you can kind of learn the basics from this. See, like this one I'm talking about, $114 for basic robotics. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, that is kind of a path um, forward. Uh, if you already have some familiarity with software, then using Arduinos and things is a good way uh, to get into it. Uh, and then also the uh, self-driving car or other like robotics courses that kind of follow the computer science track um, that are available kind of through through various uh, websites. So, uh, you know, Coursera, uh, edX, things like that um, have a lot of these kinds of courses. So that, those are kind of the, I think, the easiest ways to get into it if you're kind of curious about it. Okay. Well, thank you. Well, th this has been super insightful because now my, my robotics knowledge has increased just a little bit. So, th <laughs> so thank you for coming on and, and discussing and sharing. 
in terms of what's coming up, another mystery show for next week. Um, other than that, um, you can find us at the rubberduckdevshow.com website. Um, you can go there to sign up for an email list. Actually going to be putting a bit more in each email. So if you want to get uh, more information about that, you know, you can go ahead, go ahead and sign up for our email list there. That also has links to all the shows that we've, re that we've released as well as links to different content. So some of the content we discussed today, I'll be putting in the episode for this show. So apart from that, I hope everyone has a great week and we'll see you next week. And until next time, happy coding. All right, happy coding. <laughs>